Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is no Santa Claus. And I specifically remember the reason that we said there was no Santa Claus was, one, if we were working all year to then put aside something special for a big treat at the end of the year, um, then certainly we were not going to attribute it to a random man with a beard. And, you know, I mean, we were just not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, the reason that we told our children there was no Santa Claus was because we were like, look, the world is a space that will feed you propaganda and lies about everything. But in our house, we sit in a center of truth. And as much as we can, if we don't have information, we can look it up together, we can figure it out. But there is nothing that you cannot ask us in our house that we're not going to try to answer you truthfully. You are listening to the Dope Black Moms Podcast. I'm delighted to be here with Dr. Natasha Gordon-Chimberry, writer, editor, coach, author, and mum of two. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And obviously, I'm in Hackney, London. Where are you in the world? I'm in very sunny Costa Rica. (laughs) Don't hold it against me. Because obviously it was freezing today. I'm actually wearing thermals right now. That's how cold it is. So brilliant. We need some of your sunshine. Okay, I'm sending it all the way up north for you. (laughs) Thank you. Greatly, greatly received. So writer, editor, coach, author, mum of two. Just first of all, how are you achieving all of this? And how are you sounding so sing-songy at the same time? Well, I have to say this, I do not have small children. And so my son, who is finishing university this semester, is, thank you, he's 21. Mm. And my daughter, who is graduating from high school, will turn 18 on Friday. Mm. And so I actually think I'm able to sort of achieve the things that I've been able to do simply because I do not have little ones. Mm. I think that, you know, having little children take a different type of focus and energy. And it wasn't as if I wasn't running around doing all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, We moved to Costa Rica eight and a half years ago from Brooklyn, New York. That's where my children were born. That's where I was born. Um, My husband's from California and he's Malawian American. And we moved to Costa Rica um, in order to have a different life. But my family's Costa Rican, my mother's Costa Rican. And so this was sort of a returning home. Having older children who give you a different kind of space allows for a different kind of putting together, I think. (laughs) I am really looking forward to that space. I have a five and a seven-year-old and I think of it as literally a spiritual practice having young children just as you sure, I'm sure you remember the mm-hmm. constantness of it. Um, 
Yeah, so I'm I'm looking forward to that space. Obviously, we love all stages. Something. My son came home from university over the Christmas holidays, and I'm telling you, I enjoyed him so much. Like when we mm. were leaving and putting mm. him in the Uber to go back to university, the four of us were in a group hug, just sending him off, and we were weeping because it was such a beautiful oh. time together. And it, you know, it's not that I'm not a helicopter mom and I'm not writing him all, you know, day he goes to university in Canada. I yeah. mean, with the state of the world and the place of young black men in the world, particularly right now, it's. A a constant fear you know but there's something really nice and and nuanced about having an older child and when they were little I didn't envision this stage this friendship this reliability no. this joy no. you know I didn't envision that I, yeah. I envisioned baseball practice it was going to be for the rest of my life I you know and uh, getting the dolls and and scheduling play dates and making cupcakes totally that monotony of that age of parenting, that kind of management, it it is hard mm-hmm. to think of anything else. You're present. It? When you're in exactly. it, when you're really, really in it. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I was on your website and I love the tagline, amplifying the voices and reality of global Afro-descendants. Mm. Um, brilliant sentence, brilliant statement. Just in a nutshell, what what does that mean to you? What what does how how is that mm. your mission? And then just practically, from a mothering perspective, how do you feel? And I know you've got older children, but in general, how does that filter down mm-hmm. in your day to day life? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that mission for you. Um, and so, in thinking about myself, and I identify as an Afro-Caribbean woman um, because my ancestors, as far back as I can go, which is four generations, was a Jamaican woman, a Black Jamaican woman, um, and so even though I'm, I am in Latin America, the work that I've done as I've traveled, as I've entered classrooms, I'm I'm a professor of African diasporic literature. I've been teaching for 25 years in the classroom. I went to university and got my doctorate in South Africa. And so I have sort of moved around in spaces in the globe where a, a lot of the work, a lot of the community, a lot of the activism that I've been engaged in is really about opening space and holding space for Afro-descendant people, um, for voices, not at the exclusion of anyone else, but also it's about prioritizing safety in a world that has historically indicated there is no safety for the black and brown body. And so, and particularly as someone Mm. who studies and writes about slavery, that has sort of been my my impetus. It's the it's the kind of thing where my husband and I, you know, when our children were little, we said to them, um, "There is no Santa Claus." And all their friends were, you know, in that stage of Santa Claus. And I specifically remember the reason that we said there was no Santa Claus was one, 
if we were working all year to then put aside something special for a big treat at the end of the year, um, then certainly we were not going to attribute it to a random man with a beard. And, you know, I mean, we were just not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, the reason that we told our children there was no Santa Claus was because we were like, look, the world is a space that will feed you propaganda and lies about everything. But mm -hmm. in our house, we sit in a center of truth. And as much as we can, if we don't have information, we can look it up together, we can figure it out. But there is nothing that you cannot ask us in our house that we're not going to try to answer you truthfully. But we did say to them, this is the reality of our house. You cannot go and burst the bubbles of your friends who really believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny and understand that everybody's home is sacred and that's not your job to you know make anybody else feel bad. But in our house, because the world can be a deceptive place, our house is a place of safety and truth. And that is why we're not going to follow mm. the these particular ideas around these mythical people mm. who you have to attribute you know mm -hmm. cookies and milk out and do all that no 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 we can we can celebrate to, exactly we're not, <laughs> we're not doing, doing that. that and so i guess you know that's in in parenting that is also how i amplify that and my children have no problems being in the world they're very well traveled you know um they in coming and living in costa rica they are now completely bilingual you know they understand the complexities of their of their heritage you know we've taken them to africa to visit you know their father's um, ancestral land in malawi and so they are very clear about who they are so they can walk in a space where they don't have to be defensive all the time. And I think that also has, that's one of the reasons that, you know, we, we made the decision to, to leave the United States. I love how intentional this all is. I think it does take that level of care and thought because it mm -hmm. is life and death yes. that we're talking about. Just going back to, to how we're not going to do that practically what age were you having these conversations i think exist? around kindergarten first grade so five six around there okay mm -hmm. yeah okay great and was this just out of interest one conversation or a series of conversations because did you have this conversation and they go into school and obviously there are other people celebrating these mythical people um, and you kind of have to come back and say, okay, that's that's their understanding. That's that's how they are doing it. But in this house, I am telling you, Santa Claus doesn't exist. It sort of was like, you know, they we had one conversation. They went they went to school and came back. Ha ha, mom. Guess what? They believe in Santa Claus. Too bad for them. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? The, they right, the right. They right. and it was really interesting because my daughter's best friend. Um, who absolutely believed in Santa Claus, you know, her, her mom came to me one day and it was around Christmas time. And she was very much into the mythology of Santa Claus. And, you know, the daughter had written this wish list. And on the wish list, the first thing that she wanted was an iPad. And I remember this moment, the mother came to me in tears and she was like, Natasha, 
we do not have money to buy an iPad for our daughter this year. Mm -hmm. And we do not know what to do because it will break her heart because we've sort of told her Santa Claus can bring her anything. And she's been good all year. And, you know, all the language about behavior control and (laughs) all these, you know, and I wasn't interested in that. Mm. And I was just like, Tell her there's no Santa Claus and be honest with your kid. Now, I don't know what they did. I mean, I don't I don't remember what happened after and if she actually told her or not. But I just remembered how distraught she was that she had perpetuated this lie and it now backfired on her. And how high the stakes were for her. She's like, I cannot let this go. I can't let my daughter down because I've built it up into this impossible thing that we can't maintain. So interesting. And and we do the same in this household. Um, just, just really interesting to see um, how you're practically doing it. Another thing that you mentioned um, when we were talking about the practical steps of how you're bringing this into your parenting. Um, obviously, you study and write about slavery just out of interest for the sheer amount of years you've done this. So is it spanning 20 years mm-hmm. now you've been in this space? How... Do you protect yourself? And and I'm and I'm asking that for many reasons, but also I know to because of the twenty year span. Obviously, your kids would have been younger when they really uh, when we're talking about all the monotony and how you um, have to give so much of yourself. So how how were you able to protect yourself while still parenting? You know, how did you? Was it trial and error or? Yeah. How, how did you practically carve out space to, to be able to do the do you work mean, you're doing? Do you mean in terms so of like scholarship and like writing and research and, and doing that? No, no more. No, actually, but that would be interesting. No, actually your headspace, mm-hmm. like protecting just your soul and just the, you know, this, the, the mm-hmm. onslaught of trauma, just the research into so much mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pain. Um, Basically, I think in a long-winded way, um, when I have to deal with really traumatic things, obviously I have to kind of take a, mm-hmm. a breath before I go back into mothering because I'm, you know, it kind of stays mm-hmm. with you, doesn't it? And it's really, really hard to let those things go. I am not doing the work that you're doing. So I was just wondering, because it's spanned mm-hmm. so long, you've been in this field for so long, you would have been mothering and parenting through different stages and I was just wondering if, um, yeah, if you kind of intentionally had to do anything to protect your headspace and for it to not kind of mm. filter through into home life, or if it mm. did filter through, how did you? Yeah, that's combat a beautiful that? question. So, I I think there are two things. Um, as my children got older, and I, you know, I. Found, I was doing research. Sometimes that would enter our conversation, but not too much. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously it was tempered. Um, and I think probably for a long part and they're growing up, they were they were like, does mom work? <laughs> because I was, I was always at, at their school. I was the head of their parent-teacher association. I was always present because they went to a private Quaker school in Brooklyn. And so I was like, they were one of few students of color. And so I was like, I'm going to be as present as possible. And I, I was a college professor. So I was able to, you know, I mean, I maybe I taught two or three times a week. I was tenured. And so 
I could arrange my schedule during the school day in a way that I could still drop them off in the morning or my husband, depending on what day, you know, we had drop off and then pick them up after school and still do after school practices. And if there was tutoring or homework or whatever it was, um, I was still fully present to do that. So I carved my work life around them. Um, But I think in terms of slavery, one of the things I've been very, 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 very fortunate with is that my husband, who's been my partner for 26 years, he is someone who I have been able to process a lot of this information through. So, you know, I will say, okay, one of the books that really changed my life was Saidiya Hartman's Lose Your Mother. And I was just so, so moved Mm -hmm. by this book. And it really shifted the way I understood how Africans participated in the transatlantic slave trade. And I mean, there was just so much. And, you know, he's the kind of partner, when I was talking to him through this, he actually took the book and read it. And then we could have conversations. So we would have, I mean, it's not like, Yes, I mean that's not that's not a bedroom that's our bedroom conversation. I mean, but yes, I mean so there are all kinds of conversations, but yes, I mean there are hours like on the weekend where you know as the kids got older, or even you know just at night where we would have these conversations, or even if the kids go to bed, we would have these conversations about these this these very heavy topics, and I think. That has been sort of the way that I've been able to process and this work. And even uh, when I was writing my doctorate, I was working with circumcised West African women and I was doing workshops with them in the Bronx. And, you know, I would come home and I would have the, you know, after the, the kids went off to dinner, he, you know, he would sort of decompress with me. So I would say that has been a, my singular way of keeping my head um, in a space. And then I love romance novels. <laughs> I love, love, love historical Ooh, romance novels. Yeah. And so I gobble them up. Um, and that is sort of an automatic, like, okay, my brain needs to decompress. I'm not like a Netflix or like, yeah. I just do so much reading that it has to be pleasure reading where I can just kind of turn off and just read. Mm. And it's always happily ever after. I know the end is going to work out and that's enough for me and I guess those two things yeah that's brilliant and I love that that you know that about yourself because you know exactly what you need and you can have your books you know loaded up you could you can have everything ready for yes. to support yourself which is brilliant so finding la nagrita is available now Thank uh, you. congratulations amazing to have a published book out there how would you describe the book Ooh, okay so it's historical fi- <laughs> it's historical fiction so finding la negrita la negrita is actually the name of the black madonna here in costa rica so she's actually a real icon she's the patron saint la negrita is um, a black icon of the virgin mary and the baby jesus that was found in 1635 here in costa rica and she is the patron saint of the country. Her feast day is August 2nd, and most Catholics in the country venerate her completely. And so I always found it really interesting that Costa Rica, which presents itself as sort of a white presenting country in Central America that's very um, sort of Spanish leaning or Spaniard leaning, 
um, very much white presenting and considers itself the Switzerland of Central America because it doesn't have an army, et cetera, et cetera. Um, never really acknowledged the fact that it had over 200 years of slavery in the country. And even though it didn't have a cash crop plantation system, um, they still had enslaved people that they brought from different parts of Latin America, particularly from Panama. So it wasn't like met many numbers or they didn't have necessarily people directly coming off ships from Africa. It was mostly people who had already been in the Americas working on different plantations and they would bring in small numbers of enslaved Africans who would then reproduce. And that is essentially how slavery grew in Costa Rica. And so... I was like, okay, it's not really a popular conversation. It's not in the history books. Um, there are not many, you know, the people who were enslaved in Costa Rica eventually, quote unquote, blended into the bloodstream. So now they're just Costa Rican and you can't really tell if someone is of African descent. And then sort of the, the visible Afro-Costa Ricans today are actually Afro-Caribbean people who came through the Caribbean coast and worked for the United Fruit Company at the turn of the 20th century, which is how my family came to Costa Rica. Um, but from the 17th century, you had enslaved Africans and you had a community of free African descendants also living in the colonial capital. And I thought about all those people and then I thought, well, there's kind of a gap or disconnect. You have an entire country that venerates a Black Madonna, but there's nothing in its text that talks about the Black people that were here that built the capital, whose labor helped establish this nation. And so that's what the book is about. It took me, as I said, seven years to research. I went from the British Library. I was in the British Library mm. for a really long time. Um, the National Archives, they got information from Guatemala, from the churches. Um, but it was very instructive because at first I thought, you know, as a scholar, you know, uh, I was thinking about actually writing a historical text on sort of the Afro-descendant legacy of colonial Costa Rica originally. And I'm thinking about slavery. I would, that's the direction of my research. And then I realized that there are certain voices that I just could not find in the archive. And that's where creative, the, you know, the creative element comes in. And that's why it's historical fiction. So I had the creative license to give voice and name to this community that I know existed, um, but their lives are not, you know, part of sort of national narratives of history and, and identity making for Costa Rica. And so that's what this book is about. But more than anything else, it's about love. <laughs> it's a love. There, there are multiple love mm. stories um, and love from self, love of self to, you know, intimate love, secular love, you know, father, daughter, community, grandmother, elders. I mean, it's the whole gamut. But one of the things I really wanted to write about and um, think through with this idea that even in the deepest oppression and violence of enslavement, the most radical act amongst Afro-descended people could be to love. And I really wanted that mm. very like upfront and, you know, and out there. And I think, I think I managed to do some of that. <laughs> I was just going to say, if you had one thing, one mission, one one word or one sentence, what would you want readers to take away? And would it be that, the power of love and that it is 
open and available and um, all right. Mm -hmm. I think it would be that. And then it would also be like, I guess the second desire in writing this book was for um, this history to join a conversation of celebrating Afro descendant legacies in the Americas, particularly in Latin America specifically, because it's been made so invisible. It's marginalized narratives. And I really wanted for this book to, you know, because I mean, no one's writing about slavery in Costa Rica. No one's envisioning that. I mean, most publishers turned me down when I originally, when I was trying to get it published, because they were like, slavery black people in costa rica what i mean costa rica is like one of probably the top five destination countries in the world you know i mean the level of tourism Mm. you know i mean it's an eco-friendly country it is you basically i mean the only thing we don't have here right now we don't have a target and we don't have a trader joe's and i mean essentially (laughs) (laughs) there's everything there is everything else that you can replicate from the united states and even from Europe. And so the point is that there's access to so many different types of resources in Costa Rica, you know? Um, So people are not actually lining up that there was a slavery history because there was no plantation in the way that there, you know, many people think about plantation slavery and cash crop slavery in the Southern parts of the United States or even in South America and in the Caribbean. How overall has it been received? Well, um, it was published on September 30th, and I had a beautiful book launch at the Brooklyn Museum of Art So I flew in New York. And so I flew there with my family, and it was a beautiful, beautiful event. It moment. was fantastic. My family, yeah. just people from all walks of life showed up to support me. It was just, it was a gorgeous evening. And I would say that... Uh, from that time, I have had great, great affirmation. So I'd say two things: people are buying the book, but some of them are some of them are not reading it, right? And then there are okay. people who are buying it and having very intense reactions. I mean, beautifully intense. I mean, people are just digging mm. in, and so those conversations have been life affirming for me. Um, because I this can. is my first attempt at writing fiction. I've never done it before. I don't have any formal training in it. I mean, I teach literature, but you know, I'm teaching sort of analysis and theory, critical thought, and and so the other end of it, sort of the mechanics. I don't have an MFA. I have a, a master's in education and a master's in African literature and language. And so I, I the, sort of, you know, developing the plot, I can teach you how to do it, but I, I mean, I do teach writing, but in terms of someone teaching me, it's not anything that I've had formal training in. So this was my first attempt. And I have to say that I'm so grateful for my press, Jaded Ibis, and my editor, Lisa Pegram, because when she read it, you know, there was very little that they need, they wanted changed. I mean, there was some grammar stuff. We just, you know, there were just a couple of sort of mechanical things, but in terms of the characters, in terms of their voices, none of that changed. How I gave it to them is how it's amazing. It's so amazing. It's so affirming. Mm -hmm. It is. That's congratulations. That's phenomenal, truly. And, you know, a testament to trying and putting yourself out there. That's, that's truly amazing. Thank you. Um, 
I just wanted to divert to something you said much earlier because because um, it's a massive, again, a massive um, step that you made. Um, just for mothers listening, you relocated from New York to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to understand any practical advice that you have for mothers who might be debating, thinking through, yearning for a big move like that. Having done it and having been through it and thought about it and now living, what, eight years on? How, if you did it all again, basically any Mm -hmm. advice for someone looking to to do this, a mother looking to move her family? And so I do actually a lot of expat consulting for families who are looking to move to Costa Rica. And I have actually helped families move. Um, So a couple of things. One, if you feel like it is time in your spirit, don't second guess yourself. Do it. Mm. Always, always, always. That's good life. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, you know when it's time. Um, And I would say always come for a visit first, but in a way where it's not like you're just going to be at a resort at a beach, but like choose an area. Mm. There's so many beautiful communities online. Like Facebook has so many private groups where like black young mothers who are expats in Costa Rica. I mean, it's so, I mean, there's so many communities um, that that are available in, in other spaces, not just in Costa Rica. So I would say come to visit. The one thing that I did, because I have been coming to Costa Rica my entire life and bringing my children, my husband, we've been coming, but we came for family vacations. We came for Christmas, you know, so it's always staying with a relative and spending time at the beach, somebody cooking for you and not having to think about sort of the day to day. And then you pack up and you sort of, you know, go back to the cold life in Brooklyn or, you know, whatever, if it's winter, but you kind of you know, come in for a second and and kind of get fed by family. It is radically different when you are living in a space. I don't live anywhere near my 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 family. Um, they're in other parts of the Central Valley. Um, but one of the things that I would say that guided my decision to move to Costa Rica was that we found a school first for our kids. So we Mm. came, so we knew probably a year and a half before that we wanted to make this move. So what that meant was that we were saving some money um, because the process was, is not an inexpensive one. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that our children would be in a school that felt good for them. And our, what we said was that we would try it for a year. So we packed up, we were, you know, we, our rental was done. We were very strategic about that. We put the stuff that we wanted to put into storage for a year. And then once we found the school, we then asked the school community about houses in the neighborhood. And that's how we were able to get a rental. And then once the kids felt like, you know, they started to have friends, we bought them bikes, we got a puppy, you know, I mean, it was sort of like they were starting to get grounded. They were the temperature for us to say, you know, because to be honest, my husband and I, when we got on that plane, we were like, oh, we're not coming back here. I mean, let me be really honest with you, but we would have, we would have, 
if the children if the children were were not thriving and it's not just surviving but mm. thriving right because mm. um, my son was right at that age entering eighth grade where his body had moved from you know the cute little kid in the baseball outfit to don't run ahead because people are going to think you've just robbed somebody he was right at that age and we were just like oh no no, no, no. We've read the temperature of the United States. We know history very well. And so this was a moment. So if I could tell moms, come, go and visit the place. Like, don't be a tourist. Literally get an Airbnb in a town, visit a couple of schools, do your due diligence. That's super important. Don't just land here and buy something, you know, really take your time figure out, you know, is there a sport that your kid likes? Is there, you know, is what what can you do that prioritizes your child? Because I'm telling you, when your child is able to sleep peacefully at night, then you can speak, sleep peacefully at night, regardless of where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is brilliant, brilliant advice. And, and again, great, just life advice as well. Thank, Thank you. you so much for sharing so much <laughs> with with me and with us tonight. Um, yeah, just just really grateful to to for you to drop so many gems on us. So so thank you for your thank time. Thank you. It was beautiful. Dope black moms. If you'd like to join the Dope Black Moms private Facebook group, please search Dope Black Moms on Facebook. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Please follow on all socials at Dope Black Moms. Thanks so much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.